Hey, Peter. What up? Do you know we have over 150 episodes already available? That's right. With thousands upon thousands of listeners from every state of this union that we live in. Probably. And one thing we haven't really done is a real live recording, but that is about to change, isn't it? That's right. From the historic Windsor Theater here in Hampton, Iowa, a live recording with me, Bullhagen, Berg, Vicker, and Peter for one night and one night only. When is that going to be, Pete? It'll be Monday, January 24th at 7 p.m. It's completely free to join us, no admission. And uh, we would like some audience interactions and all sorts of fun things, and maybe some guests. The concession stand will be open, and you could even BYOB to share. So yeah, come come with a friend, come with a question, and we'll have some note cards too. So think of a question, you can write some questions down so you don't feel like you have to, you know, stand up and ask a question if you're kind of like nervous about it. And, and we know we know Berg's not listening right now, but we'll tell you, we actually will find ways to bother Berg too. Oh, we'll find a way to bother him. Oh, sure. Yeah. So please join us. That is Monday, January 24th at the Windsor Theater in Hampton, Iowa. Please join us. I hope to see you there. Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Talks and Tasting Studios, this is Bullhagen. This is Berg. And I'm Vicker. Welcome to the show. Well, we've got a, a Hannah episode. We do this once in a while. Where we have a, a full inbox from our associate producer, and we have to clean out the inbox. That's the truth. Um, truth be told, this is... Uh, record the same day as the last episode. So we are on fire. We so. are on fire. My teeth are still clean for the most part. So, I mean, I almost thought we were going to talk about the transfiguration because of your teeth rather than the baptism. <laughs> so then we'd have to talk about the hymn Shine Jesus Shine. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Yeah, why don't we do a comparison of that translation? Hey, never mind. <laughs> How you doing, Pete? Doing great. You guys had some Subway, I had some Chick-fil-A, we're fueled up for episode number two. Oh. Closed on Sunday. You're my Chick-fil-A. Yeah, we haven't really talked about him lately. He kind of dropped out of the news, right? Actually, I'll be honest, uh, on Amazon I watched uh, a concert. Yeah? It actually was pretty good. Did you you watch any of that, Pete? I'm actually in the midst of downloading it right now. Oh, okay. (laughs) Nice. So, Vicar... Uh, we still have some of this ginger beer. Yeah. It's great. Uh, so that's what I'm drinking. Me and, too. And I am having a mini Coke Zero from the the official Clerical Errors mini fridge. By the way, I'm glad you all got to enjoy some of that venison a couple weeks ago. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we had a roast the other day as well. That Iowa deer, is that, which is better, Iowa deer or Michigan deer? Oh, they're pretty comparable. I think they both eat well. Yeah, I mean that that deer. I'm sure he took he ate a lot of corn out of the field because yeah. there was no gaminess to him at all. Nope. <laughs> so let's. <laughs> yeah, let's keep moving. We, we always have to keep what we do too. We ought to keep the energy. Going yeah. That all right. <laughs> so what uh, well, what's the text? What are we? Uh, Vicar's preaching this time, right? What are you preaching on, Vicar? Well, it's the second Sunday of Epiphany. And the text is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the wedding at Cana. That's not a long text. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll just read it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So, uh, Vicar, what, do, what are your thoughts so far on the text? Still, still outlining it, but I noticed the uh, kind of the text they paired with it from the epistles. Um, they kind of make it sound like you could take it either two directions, either with an Ephesians 5 text to kind of focus on weddings, which this is a wedding, obviously, and uh, it's also... Well, the beginning of Jesus being the bridegroom for the true Israel, the church that he is creating. And you can't separate the life of Christ and the life of church because they are one and the one and the same. Mm-hmm. Or the uh, other epistle that they suggest is a Romans chapter 12, and it's more on um, you know having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. So it's more on serving. So you could look at the kind of the servants in this text who did what they were told. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but We I, actually listened to a very good uh, – um, there, there is a, a podcast where it's – what is it? Luther Sermons. Right. Where uh, – I think it's Wolf – Wolf – what's his name? Wolf Mueller. Where he basically reads a, either part or, a, or the whole sermon of Luther. And, awesome. Uh, um, I like it because, you know, with my attention issues, I actually – really hear and understand it better when I hear it. Right. But uh, when Luther preached on this, he talked about faith. Um, faith being how, in a sense, sometimes God lets you, he waits to the last moment. Or Jesus dealt harshly with his mother at the same time she trusted in his goodness. Or how at the last minute, you know, when they thought we're running out, he came in, and sometimes God allows us to go through those times without and with struggle so that we we still trust in his goodness when times are lean, that he still gives us everything that we need. He still rescues us from our sin. But a lot of, time, a lot of times he, he, he lets us wrestle with the cross first. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one thing that Luther focused on on this sermon. Um. With this kind of sermon, it's really easy to allegorize it sometimes. Yeah. You know, well, this represents this and this represents this, which can be fine to do, but I think you could get carried away with that. Right. What's interesting is the dialogue between Mary and Jesus, and Mary is never called out by name in here, uh, or in John, right, for that matter. It's always 
uh, mother of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he calls her woman here, and he does the same at the cross mm-hmm. when he uh, gives her to John to be his mother and him to be her son. Um, but what's interesting is when she just simply says they have no wine, it immediately makes Jesus think of his passion. And that's what he says. What's this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So his mind... Have you, have you ever done that to your kids? Where you come and you uh, just make a statement? You're like, the garbage is still on the house. With the implication, <laughs> right? Oh. The implication is... You need to take out. You need the to take out the garbage, right? right. Well, I have happened to me when the kids were younger, and I came home, and Dad's home, and immediately I start contemplating my own death. <laughs> I did talk about this part of the text. Just kidding, Peter. <laughs> once before, where Jesus addresses his mom as woman, what does this have to do with me? And that maybe she gave him a look because he went ahead and he made that wine, you know. But <laughs> I think this really does teach the limits of the fourth commandment. Yeah. Right, because before, when she goes to him and says they have no wine, she's expecting him to do something, mm-hmm. and she's using her motherly authority to try and get him to do something. That, that's actually something Luther also mentioned in the sermon that we listened yeah. to, where you can almost hear uh, hear Luther's conflict with his own father, where his father wanted to do certain things, and he said, basically, there has a limit to. Parental authority, yeah. The parental authority. Right, you know, and I think, too, uh, that this is something that's very, very important because, you know, here, of course, we we, we teach that we honor our parents. We do. Um, but, once again, Jesus doesn't use his power to make his mom happy, right? Jesus doesn't use his position as the son of God, mm-hmm. right? His... Uh, his position as the Christ. And he also understood probably the temptation that would be for Mary, you know, because Mary I, did know. Okay, let's, let's yeah, clear the air. She, she did. She did know. And if you're the mother of, of Jesus, um, there would be a temptation then too. Right. Well, and we see it with his relatives. Mm-hmm. His relatives say, well, what are you doing being in Galilee? Why don't you go to the feast and show yourself to the world? Right, but then it says that even they did not believe in him. Right, I mean, you see Jesus doing all of these things, and his, you know, his mother and his relatives are waiting outside, you know, because they think he's crazy. They want to take him home, right? And <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, they're like, yeah. well, you know, you know, I, I just, yeah, yeah. I'm imagining the family conversation, you know. Yeah, he's that, that deep you know, breath. Uh... Yeah, he's the son of God, but you know, obviously. His head is in the clouds, <laughs> you know. He doesn't really know how the world works, so he's a deep thinker. <laughs> yeah, we, we just need to like guide him through this, right? Right. Which ulti- it's not too different than having a vicar sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Only your vicar has never been the son of God. Yeah. Uh, how, how are we going to handle this one? <laughs> so Luther pointed out too, right in that sermon we heard about it was, um, she didn't stop there after Jesus' response. She still trusted in the Lord to uh, hear her hear her plea. Right. And, uh, and she And she leaves it completely in his hands, in right? Faith. Yep. Because he might tell the servants to do nothing. So this is a proof text that uh, if you really want to get to Jesus, you, you, you go to Mary first. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh. Wah, 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 wah. 
but he took this opportunity to introduce to uh, those that were close to him, you know, the disciples and his mother and the servants, the two elements that he's going to use to transmit his grace in the future, mm -hmm. water and uh, wine. So this is actually this has been taken sacramentally before, mm -hmm. although some people might rest too long on that, right? For the text, you know, and I just think of the immense amount of wine Jesus made here, gallons. Okay, so we're talking twenty to thirty gallons per jar. Yeah, and so that equals up to about between six hundred and nine hundred bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine that Jesus made, right? And I but, think, but don't you think Jesus made it non-alcoholic wine? Not according to the... Uh, Kosher, the, probably. Yeah, the MC, right? The master <laughs> of the feast. Because he comes to the groom and he's like, what in the world are you doing? Like, this stuff should have gone out first, buddy. Do you know, when I hear this text, though, and I think of weddings in that day, I think they really didn't know how to party. Yeah, it'd go on for like a week. Yeah, it was it, great. I was going to say it was like a seven-day event. And so the wine needed to last for the duration. I mean, you go to someone's house for about three or four hours later. I mean, you're really, you're looking at your watch and you're stretching, you know. Right. You know, I mean, they didn't have a DJ. Well, even at even at my wedding, right, we had beer and stuff in the, you know, afterward mm -hmm. in the uh, in our, in the garage and in the house and stuff. And it was fun. But yeah, seven days, like. Right. I remember at my wedding, like after a few hours, I'm like staring at my watch. You're like. Let's go. <laughs> gotta go, gotta go. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the beautiful institution of marriage, um, the limits of the fourth commandment. Um, the fact that the, the jars were used for purification. Right. That's another great point, you know. And uh, and, uh, and that God, God actually wants... God isn't a prude, Right. Mm -hmm. He actually does give us stuff to enjoy life. That's why I, I don't really like it when people say, well, God will give you what you need. Sometimes, yeah. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, God will give you what's best for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, he actually does give you more than you need. He gives you the cross, but he also he gives, gives you, you the other side. Great pleasures in this life. I mean, wine gladdens the hearts of men, the food that we eat. Um, how were you, how in the Old Testament, what were you to do to remember God's grace and mercy? And all the things that he did for you. You hold a feast. Right. He so, commanded them, have a feast. You know, and, and I, I think part of it, too, is we, we we almost have too much. Like, we eat good food all the time. And so, and we never fast. You know, most of us never fast. We never go without eating. Or cut down what we're eating or whatever, unless you're bullhagging with a, you know... Right. But I still try and make sure I have the proper amount of of essential amino acids so uh, I don't have deflated biceps. And, or calves. And my calves, yeah. yeah. Calves still a work in progress. My wife still has – I've been flexing them like like watching TV. She still hasn't noticed. She hasn't said anything. So Now I'm just thinking of like a balloon deflating with your bicep like on the cartoons. <laughs> but so – Popeye. <laughs> But no, I mean, I think that's one By thing. By the way, two twenty-five, fifteen refs, living the dream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I do think that it's uh, God actually wants us to enjoy the things of this life too, just in the right way mm -hmm. by faith, right? So 
Or if you want to sound like a, a seminarian, you just spend all your time talking about first article gifts. Well, you know, not a bad way to talk about it. So we have to get to the Hannah episode aspect, and she she fired off a bunch of questions. And the first one uh, we are going to answer with a top 12 list, except it's 10 and it's Berg. So, yeah. So let's, let's read the question first, and we'll see what... Do you want the intro? Peter. Play the intro. Enough nonsense. It's time for Bullhagen's Top 12. All right, so the question from Hannah is, uh, quote, I wasn't kidding. So she must have mentioned this already once. And, and um, I have please, no recollection of that. <laughs> me neither. Um, please do discuss the extent to which the nationalistic responses to COVID-19 are part of God's plan to tear apart globalization before mankind builds another Tower of Babel. All right. So first we have to describe what globalization is, right? Mm -hmm. And globalization is, it's kind of something that humans do naturally. So for example, you know, when you look at a tree, right, you have that tree in your mind, Mm -hmm. okay? And, you know, we have a saying for it, right, that, you know, you don't want to see the, you know, the forest for the trees, right? That you don't, right. you know. Con- so we make abstractions all the time, right? Where we take one thing and then we abstract it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we do the same thing in medicine. Um, and, you know, that has its purpose. But... Because it, in some ways, uh, if people do things more efficiently than other. So if someone can do something more efficiently and more cheaply, then we rely on that person to do it. And the the circle gets bigger and bigger as we become more specialized. Right. Yep. And then you kind of all of a sudden then you you, you find out, okay, I'm getting a a box of staples is being mailed from California. Is that actually better? Yeah, or Taiwan or wherever, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is as we abstract ourselves out farther and farther, um, we lose our peculiarities and our distinctiveness. So when you're talking about billions of people, right, you're really almost talking about an empty concept, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of like what Stalin said. The death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic. Because what happens is... Um, for example, as a pastor, I know that certain things can only be done in person. You know, we love the listener who listen all over the country in the podcast, right? And we've it's stats of show. We, people have listened all over the country. But that's a little different than mean being in someone's living room or they're being in church. Right. You know, I can say things. Knowing them, living beside them, um, working with them, sometimes even fighting with them. Um, yeah, I mean... And I could say things, for example, on a podcast. One thing I like about it is I'm free. I'm not talking to anyone specifically. I talk in a way that I'm talking to this wide audience. I say things here and that we wouldn't say, like, if you're sitting necessarily with parishioners or... Yeah, I mean... Sometimes. In a family. Sometimes. Sometimes, but that's the, the whole behind-the-collar concept is that we're kind of being general and we're talking just more about the experience as a pastor. Right. You know, we might be a little earthy how we explain it here sometimes and we would in other places. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but when you talk about globalization, there's always layers and layers of separation. So the you know the president can think as though he can make health decisions for everyone else for everyone else when he doesn't deal with individuals anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's a right. And so how you know globalization has been going on for a long time. I mean, um, we've we've seen this uh, really since the 17th centuries with the discovery of the you know this. Well, the 15th and 16th centuries with the discovery of the New World, colonies, um, this sort of trading back and forth between nations. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this trend of becoming even more interconnected internationally has been going on for a long, long time. Um, and, you know, it's been kind of uh, exacerbated in the last 20 years by things like free trade and... Um, and you know, I think we've seen the consequences of it with COVID, because there's there's a aspect of groupthink and suppressing. If you you want everyone on board, then what do you have to do? You have to get rid of the ideas and thoughts that are not on board, right? And you know, I so we see the problems with globalization, not only in terms of not being able to to deal with dissent or real actual questions, but also just in terms of um, ventilators, um, the the sort of meat and potato stuff that we import. I mean, they, they, they've been talking about, a, you know, um, a shortage for all of these different things because the ports are just, you know, jam-packed. Right. And part of that is because of globalization, we've shipped a lot of our jobs overseas. Mm -hmm. We actually import right. a lot of... Uh, things that we could have made ourselves, but instead we've giving we've sent these jobs over to China, Mexico, that sort right. of thing. Right? It's kind of like I almost right now, for example, with the price of beef. You know, I don't have enough land to have a cow on my land. You know, I just got a little right. yard. But you know, the thought of you know it'd just be easier if I just <laughs> you know right. And it's it, cut every, out the middleman and take care of that myself. Right, and everything works good, right? I mean, or deer hunt, yeah, or, or deer, deer hunt. hunt. <laughs> you know, globalization, and see, and that's the thing is, you know, we've really, as Americans, benefited a lot from globalization. I mean, we've been able to buy a lot of cheap mm -hmm. stuff, but then you know, we have to ask the question: Is that really a good thing? Is that good for our neighbor, for example, if you know our shoes are being made by slaves? You know, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are all questions that uh, we actually have to deal with. And with the whole shortage, you know, of of different things, I mean, it, it is a big deal. Um, now, before we get way into this, there's one aspect of Hannah's question that I want to get to. And that is, uh, um, is it part of God's plan to tear apart globalization? I, I don't know how to answer that. Because can we know that? You know... Yeah, I mean, you that, know, that, you know that's, that's sometimes the questions pastors get asked is, why is God doing this? And we don't always know. Yeah, we know that God has done this. Mm -hmm. For what reason, we're not 100% sure. Um, the thing is, is honestly, I don't think that the nationalistic um, responses to COVID are actually going to break apart globalization. I really don't. Actually, I think what it's it, going to do it's is... It's doing the opposite. Yeah, it's actually furthering globalization with health organizations like WHO. In fact, I uh, last night I was talking to uh, a member of mine, 
And he was telling me a, um, a report that he read, and I don't know if it's uh, I don't know if it's true or not. I hope to God it's not true. But he told me that he saw a news report where um, the our president, President Biden, met with the president of India. Now, in India, when they were hit with uh, the Delta uh, variant of COVID, um, one province put together uh, a prevention pack. And no one knows what's ac- what was actually in that prevention p- pack. We know that there was ivermectin in there, and we know that there was hydro... The hydrochlor something. Chloroquine. We know that, but we don't know what else was in there. Uh, out of all of the provinces, their hospitalizations leveled out. Um, the severity of the disease leveled out. Um, while all the other provinces around them, uh, COVID was raging. So President Biden met with the president of India, and they agreed that they would not release what was in those packets to the general public. Now, if this story is true, um, that is a very, very terrifying thing. Don't you think we could figure that out? How many billions of people are there? In- well, I don't know how many are in this province. And, and it's like uh, this member of mine said, eventually it will get out. The question is, is what, you know. If, why, why are they not Right. Not saying- and the World Health Organization also put the kibosh on releasing what was exactly in these prevention packs. Well, and I can tell you one possible reason why, because you you look at the things that people have been doing with these supposed cures where, you know, they stockpile it or they overdo it. So if it's a relatively available thing, people are going to buy it up, stockpile it and then overuse it and then like hurt themselves that way, just like they did with uh, the ivermectin stuff. Like people were, you know, buying way too much of it and like, you know, poisoning themselves or making themselves real sick. It might be that that's kind of a way to curb that. Kind of like how uh, um, uh, the patron Saint Fauci said that masks don't work because he didn't want everyone buying them up so that uh, there'd be a shortage for healthcare workers. And then yeah. once they had I, enough, they said, I, okay, everyone should wear two of them. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, I mean, like, it is an issue, right? Um, I, I, I do understand that. You know, that we don't want people buying stuff, you know, stockpiling it, overusing it, whatever, you know, that that is that I mean, that is a valid concern. My issue is, is that you have medical institutions um, that will not try anything um, to help those who are suffering from COVID-19. Right. Um, I and I've I've been told I've said on meetings on this and they have said. We will try no experimental things, even when the family says, look, we'll sign whatever you want us to sign. Please just try something. Because what we're doing nothing isn't working. Right. And so, um, and, you know, this is supposed to be medicine. Medicine works in probabilities. Um, and if it doesn't work, then write a paper about it. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are concerns here. And you actually, you actually, this is not something though. You, see, it's out of the blue. I mean, from the the last fifty years, um, a lot of scientific discoveries or talking points are just f- forbidden. Whether it's any kind of discussion on creation or intelligent design, yeah. Or, I mean, I have a 
I have students in catechism class uh, who are afraid to bring their catechisms and open them and read them and study them in study hall because they're afraid their teachers are going to come down hard on them. You know? And so what I don't like is this sort of lockstep... Um, Truth suppression. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially as, as you, you, are, you love the whole classical model of education, you're actually try to teach them to actually think for themselves and be able to discuss and have an honest debate about right, things. Right, because how can we innovate? How can we produce more evidence-based uh, stuff if we're not actually trying some of these things? Right. Um, you know, and, and, and I then, even think about the, the vaccines. Uh, and, and then just the contempt that they treat normal people with. Even when you, you talk to the va- about the vaccines, um, put all the eggs in that basket and then... When was the last time we actually updated a vaccine? Well, and the thing that bothers me about, you know, you we can talk about... We don't want to, you know... Get, yeah. I, I mean, I, we're not experts on that part, but we the, can talk about... But the thing that bothers me is that when you have the U.S. government sealing the records of these vaccines for 55 years, that looks pretty darn shady to me. And so this is the thing is that, you know, there's a... There's a great distrust of institutions among the common man right now. And, but yeah, I mean, I I honestly don't think anything with COVID is, um, if anything, it is, it is increasing globalization through large tech companies and pharma companies like Amazon. You look at the companies that made money during the pandemic, it's the Walmarts, it's the Amazon, it's, you know... It, it's these uh, these giant and who suffered? Who lost their jobs? Who lost their businesses? It was the mom and pop stores. The local. It was the local people who suffered the most. And so, you know, that's why. I mean, um, I actually think it's it's increasing globalization rather than breaking it up. So, what's your top ten list here? So, because globalization is a problem. I mean, I think Hannah hit it on the head that it really is a new Tower of Babel. Um, you know, uh, I am a, a firm proponent of uh, what we call conservatism, and I don't mean that in a political sense. Okay, what I mean by that is being a conservative is a mindset; it's an attitude, um, and conservatives, true conservatives can actually have very, very different policies Mm -hmm. on different things. Like, for example, Luther is a great conservative, and he believed in a money chest, a common money chest uh, for towns, which most people would consider some sort of socialism almost, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you bring an interesting point, because um, in some... Circles of so-called, I'll say, so-called Lutheranism. Right. They they see they focus on Luther the reformer, meaning let's carry it on the spirit of Luther and let's keep on reforming everything. Let's reform healthcare. Let's re- reform race relations. Let's reform, you know, all these things. When Luther he reformed according to the Word of God, it wasn't just a blanket reform, but he was also conservative in the sense of. Let's try and keep as much of the good stuff as we possibly can. Right. And this is something I'll get to a little bit later uh, in future episodes, because I want to start doing the Invocavit sermons. Mm -hmm. Um, And there we can see um, Luther's conservatism, his moving slowly, his 
great kindness and dealing with the weak, right? Mm -hmm. Ours was actually a conservative reformation. Because it actually, what people were doing in the name of Luther, you know, who, who kind of looked, oh, look at Luther's doing. We don't have to listen to so-and-so anymore. They were kind of go, going way off the rails. Yeah, I mean, there were that, riots. Like, when Luther got back to Wittenberg, uh, there were riots going on. And, and there were, were crazy, you know, split-offs that were doing kind of crazy things, and all in the spirit that they thought of Luther. Right. So when I say the word conservative, I don't mean Republican. Right. Okay? I don't mean that. Uh, what I mean is conservatism is a mindset. Um, it is an attitude. It's not, uh, it is, it is, and you'll be able to see this from my uh, top 10. Right. Because, so an example, um, we, we, we joke and we talk a lot about your love for TLH. Yeah. And, 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 and your mind frame is, let, let's, let's hold on to these good things in here. Right. If it ain't broke... Don't right. fix it. Right. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. Does that fit in with the, I was thinking to the, mini, is it minimalist mindset? The stoic, stoic? I don't know. I don't know much about it, but I know there's a group of people that believe we should go back to trying to live with less in yeah, our life. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's a, there's a big, you know, there's part of that. And I think uh, in this in this top 10 list, we're going to, see some just general principles of what conservatives believe, right? And what kind of values do they have? So I'm going to start with 10, and these kind of build off one another. Okay. okay. Number 10. The conservative believes that there exists an enduring moral order. That order is made for man, and man is made for it. Human nature is a constant, and moral truths are permanent. Okay? So in order to be a conservative... You actually have to believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth, that humans are essentially the same as they were when God mm -hmm. created them, and that there is that that moral truths are permanent. That you uh, that they're not going to change. Right. Right. To look at them in the same way you would understand gravity, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the thing: is that um, every conservative, true conservative, believes that. Because if you are a, a postmodernist, then everything is really relative. Right. Right. And there is there is no guiding star. There's my truth and your truth. And as Christians, we are all conservatives because we do believe that. We believe that there is an enduring moral order. We believe that God created things in particular mm. ways and that these things are stable and these things are permanent. And when we monkey with those things— that's when stuff really starts right. to go wrong. So, for example, when you see churches that were vastly different 50 years ago than they are today, the question is, well, who changed? Did God change? Yeah. I mean, that's—it wasn't God. It was so. Uh, right. So that's the first part. Number nine. The conservative adheres to custom, convention, and continuity. Now, what do I mean by that? It is old custom that enables people to live together peaceably. The destroyers of custom demolish more than they know or desire. It is through convention, a word much abused in our time, that we contrive to avoid perpetual disputes about rights and duties. Law at base is a body of conventions. Con continuity is the means of linking generation to generation. 
It matters as much for society as it does for the individual. Without it, life is meaningless. And so the conservative adheres, he clings to custom, convention, and continuity, right? And we know this because this is what we do for our kids. Mm-hmm. At the very least, you teach your kids language, right? Right. And that is custom. The way you teach them how to speak, the words that you teach them actually inform how they think, right? And part of that is, maybe you're going to get to this, it doesn't mean that, you know, you hold to the same ideals, like there still isn't like growth in them. Right. Um, but this is this is basically saying that the past is actually worth preserving, um, and it is necessary. It is necessary that we have the past, because if we don't have the past... Um, so, th- so, for example, um, when, when people have the argument um, about uh, um, the, our founding fathers of our country, how they were slave owners and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, you're not saying that uh, we should have conserved that, obviously. But what actually happened was they had a moral code that would ultimately abolish slavery. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot more um, complicated than people want to make it out to be. Um, Thomas Jefferson, for example, owned slaves. And yet in his early days, he argued for the abolition of slavery. And this was a big discussion uh, at the, uh, you know, among the states. And many of the states actually got rid of slavery very, very, at least in the north, Mm -hmm. uh, very slowly. Right. Um, The question is, is do you do something that is going to completely destroy society, right, mm-hmm. in the process? And, I mean, that's I mean that's the question that a conservative says, no, right? We don't completely destroy society uh, in order to cling to this abstract truth, right? And we'll get to that a little bit later. Okay. Number eight. Conservatives believe in what may be called the principle of prescription. Conservatives sense that modern people are dwarfs on the shoulders of giants able to see farther than their ancestors only because of the great stature of those who preceded us in time. Therefore, conservatives very often emphasize the importance of prescription, that is, of things established by immemorial usage, so that the mind of man runneth not to the contrary. There exist rights of which the chief sanction is their antiquity, including rights to property often. Similarly, our morals are prescriptive in a great part. Conservatives argue that we are unlikely, we moderns, to make any brave new discoveries in morals or politics or taste. It is perilous to weigh every passing issue on the basis of private judgment and private rationality. The individual is foolish, but the species is wise. And so in making de- in so in making decisions, we don't just focus on what the vicar knows. We don't just focus on what Bullhagen knows. We focus on what generations before us have mm-hmm. known and what they have thought about these things and how they dealt with these things, right? Because today, the whole idea is we need to knock everything down and rebuild. We right. need to start. Now that we have all this information now, because we know better than every other generation that came before us, we need to tear everything down and start from scratch. Right. It's as if, you know. Which is what they tried in Soviet Union. Yeah, it's what they tried in the Soviet Union. Um, and you know, it's a false view that just because it's, it's what, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis calls, uh, chronological snobbery, right? 
we think we're better than our ancestors just because we were born at a later time than that. How much do you think the evolution plays along with that thought? I think a lot, actually. I think people actually think that things are getting better, right? Um, I think evolution is definitely tied in with it. That right? we are evolving, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when actuality, we are devolving. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's going to that's gonna come up here a little bit later, too, right? Now, I think you'll like this next one. Number seven. Conservatives are guided by their principle of prudence. Okay? So what could you say to this uh, as a vicarage uh, supervisor, you know? Okay. How, you know, how should pastors, why should pastors be, you know, prudent? Um, well, you, you realize that uh, everything has a consequence. Yeah. And... Um, to be, you'd rather err on the side of caution sometimes rather than burning bridges. Yeah. And so you think about the long-term consequences right. of what you do as a pastor. Right. Not so, so when you're like, for example, when you're making a change, you could be making a change for the good, but if you make it too quickly, it's not going to... Right. You don't make decisions just because it's going to get you ahead in the short term mm -hmm. or because it's popular in the short term. Right. You look at, okay, what is this going to do to the church of God right. in five years, 10 years, And, and with years. that, then you, you realize the importance of, of building a good relation with people first sometimes so that they trust what you have to say later mm -hmm. rather than I got to prove everything right now when we first talk about an issue. Right. I mean, yeah. Because that, that just leads to, leads to conflict. Right, and that's and that's one of the things. Prudence means that you might actually have to wait a while, right, or talk a little bit, you know, before things before things happen. Right. Number six. Conservatives pay attention to the principle of variety. Okay, so this is the great thing about conservatives is not everything has to be the same, right? Uh, you feel affection for the proliferating intricacy of long-established social institutions and modes of life, as distinguished from the narrowing uniformity and deadening egalitarianism of radical systems, right? So, I mean, think about this from a congregational perspective. Iowa Falls is different than Hampton. Mm -hmm. Hampton and Latimer are very different from one another, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we're all on the same page with that, mm -hmm. right? Just like 18.0 is different than 70.0, which is different than 16.0. And rather than, you know, making everybody fit into a little box, you can actually rejoice in the variety uh, that these long-established congregations actually have. Right. That, uh, you know, for example, I, my congregation has a parochial school. You know, that is a variety that sets us apart from every other um, congregation in, in the circuit. Mm-hmm. Right, that is something that has developed that's important to us, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't demand that all you guys establish schools, right? Right. I mean, we don't go and say, "Well, you know," right? That would be wrong, mm -hmm. and it'd be wrong for you to come to Latimer and say, "Well, you should get rid of your school," so we can all be the same, right? Or you should get a vicar, right? Exactly. So that's the thing: is that the principle of variety that you know, the longer things exist, 
right? The longer these social institutions exist, things like the church, mm-hmm. right? Or different towns. Different towns have do the same mm-hmm. thing. They have their own culture. They have their own, you know, and that's okay. That's what one of the reasons, one of the strength of the podcast is there's a variety. You, you and I are different kind, kinds of thinkers. Very different, yeah. Right. And like the Augsburg Confession says, right, that there can be a variety of customs, mm-hmm. right, um, but the unity of faith is what matters, mm-hmm. right? And this was said against this sort of monolithic uniformity that the Roman Catholic Church was trying to impose on people. So so the claim that uh, uh, liberalism is more of the free thinking and provides more thinking. Yeah, and more variety or whatever. Right. Um, it's not true. It just simply isn't true. They, they actually try and shut down other modes right. of thought. Yeah, it's kind of like... Uh, you know, I was when I was in high school, you know, you always had uh you know, these different groups, right? And you know, the ones that always You were kinda, with the jocks, weren't you? I was everywhere. I didn't care. <laughs> um but, you know, uh I, I hung out with uh the goths sometimes, you know. And they, you know, did you know, they did their hair that way mm-hmm. and wore black clothes and you know, they tried to be, you know, different, right? Mm-hmm. But they all looked the same. <laughs> I mean, it's like like they look more the same than than the other kids, right? Right. Because what they were trying to do is say that we're different, but by imposing this sort of narrow view of what their group was, which is hilarious, right? Because it was actually it actually did the opposite of what they were right. trying to do, right? Where a conservative can let these things grow uh, and watch people kind of blossom. Where and when they will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and take joy in that. You know, this this is you know there will never be another thing like this. Romans twelve different gifts, different gifts, right? Number five. Conservatives are chastened by their principle of imperfectibility, right? This is the thing: human beings are. Imperfect. We got to protect ourselves from ourselves. Right. We we suffer irredeemably from certain grave faults. Right. Um, a lot of a lot of what we consider to be, you know, if you want to call it modern day liberalism, if you want to call it leftism, they actually believe that human perfectibility is possible. If we just have the right education, if every if we just redistribute the wealth the right way, um, if we just do this or do that, then man will be perfect. Which is why, for example, as a church, we subscribe to the confessions because we because we know that we are easily distracted and can be easily led away from certain truths. Right. And so we have things like conf- the confessions to make sure that, uh, to protect ourselves from how we understand justification, how we understand the sacraments, how, how we understand free will, because um, we subscribe to them because we're, there's always the temptation for, for our natural man to desire something different, something new. And um, liturgy is kind of the same way. Right. You know, um, you, know in, you go to some Anglican churches, the only place you'll actually hear the gospel is in the liturgy. Is in the liturgy. And so... So that that is something where you you know the Ten Commandments, just teaching the Ten Commandments, you're saying that I have a natural ability 
to want to do this. Or a wedding vow, for example, is the mm-hmm. same way. We are making a vow to be to love and faithful, knowing wearing a ring because what is our natural inclination is Ex- to not recognize and support the gifts that God has given us. And this is something that I think, you know, every seminarian coming out who's just received a call should really remember that you're going to a congregation, which is a group of sinners. Mm -hmm. Like, it is never going to be what you want it to be. It is never, ever, ever, right? Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is, you know, what can you... What can you look for, right? Mm-hmm. What is a reasonable expectation that we can have um, of our congregations based on the Word of God, right? Kind of like I've often, and actually I, I uh, use this in a different, you know, I say sometimes without sinners we'd be out of, out of a job. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? I was talking to <laughs> uh, a funeral director in town, and I said, well, if it weren't for sin and death, you and I would be both out of... it. Uh, I could retire. <laughs> so yeah i think that's an important one right that that sets conservatives apart from um whether it be communists or socialists uh, the, the or, consultation is the same way in the sense of the checks and balances we know that if someone has all the power that they're going to human nature is human nature and they're going to try and abuse it right yeah and that's actually a later point too which is great i'm glad you brought it up number four Uh, Conservatives are persuaded that freedom and property are closely linked, right? That um, it's good that the church owns property. It's good that uh, people own property, right? God God actually protects private property in the seventh commandment. You shall not steal, right? Mm -hmm. God actually does love private property. At the same time, he teaches later in the commandments that uh, you don't treat that property as a god. See, and that's that's the and issue. Covet. Right. Right? That how do we rightly use property? Right? It uh, should not be deified and it should not be denigrated. It shouldn't be turned into a god and you shouldn't use it, you know, dump toxic waste over it so that way it's like the Simpsons where it has the three-eyed fish. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it being a conservative means that you see yourself as a temporary custodian of this property, right? That mm-hmm. it truly belongs to God, and he's given it to you for a certain amount of time. And and you're actually trying to use your property to be a, a, a blessing to generations to come. Right. And that you're not only there to support your own family, right? Mm-hmm. But also, you know, you can use that wealth to be charitable to others. Number three. Conservatives uphold voluntary community quite as they oppose involuntary collectivism, right? Um, As a conservative, you know, we don't want to force people to do things that are against God's word or force people to do things that God has neither commanded nor forbidden, right? Mm -hmm. So as a pastor, I can't tell everyone to get married, right? Right. I can't, right? Because that's, you know— that is in their freedom. Uh, I also can't command everyone to be celibate, right? Right. Um, I can't command people to join the LWML or join the you know the ladies mm-hmm. guild or the altar guild or whatever, right? It goes back to the diversity of gifts that you were talking about, right? Um, if these things are to be given, 
They need to be given freely, voluntarily, right? Which is exactly what the gospel does. Exactly, right? It actually— That's essential to the gospel. Exactly. And that's the thing is that when when it is a a voluntary thing, right, like a vow, vows can only be made freely. They can't be made under duress, right? Mm -hmm. That is an effect of the gospel that I can give of my own and I do it freely— for the sake of others. If, so, if it's simply to uh, avoid hell or to get to heaven, that's not done freely. It's done for your own sake, not for the sake of your neighbor. Right. And if you force people to do things, um, that's... What's, that's we kind of talked about this earlier in the podcast when I said talked about the beauty of the gospel, how that can only really come from God. Right. Only he was wise enough to come up with that solution of changing our hearts right and teaching us to love by he himself right joining us so that's the thing is that these things if they are to be given they must be given freely just like money right mm-hmm. there's no law saying we have to give 10 percent, right we encourage people to give right for the support and maintenance mm-hmm. of the gospel but that was know. that was part of the, the tithing was part of the ceremonial it is law. and it, it has all been uh, abrogated by christ However, you know, St. Paul does have a lot to say about giving, right? Mm -hmm. That the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and that God loves a cheerful giver, right? Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive, right? But you don't give, you know, you don't do this. You say, we'll give 10% and then God will, like it's a financial investment so that you get more in return. That's then just being selfish. Well, Proverbs does say, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Okay. So only you're getting heavenly interest. So <laughs> number two, the conservative perceives the need for prudent restraints upon power and upon human passions. Right. So basically what he's saying there is checks and balances. Right. Mm-hmm. Because people being imperfect, being sinners as they are, will always um, try to gather more power to themselves. Sometimes it's done to help other people. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like, oh, you know, nobody's filling this position, so I just need to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Until finally, all of that power is yours, right? And there's no one to stop you. It's kind of like who do you want for district president? The one who doesn't really want it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, this is true even with with pastors, congregations, and the like, right? That um, pastors can only command you to do something if it actually is in accord with the word of God and the confessions, right? Then you are to obey him unconditionally because it's not him, but it's God. But if he steps outside that rule, if he starts commanding things that are not commanded in God's word— profanes the name of God. Right. Um, And this is why every Christian, in a sense, uh, has this sort of check and balance, right? Because Mm -hmm. they have the word of God, and they— ought to stand up to their pastor if he does wrong. And a pastor needs to be able to say, okay, are you arguing or upset with me, or are you upset with God's word? Right. And if you can't show it in God's word, then you're you're walking on thin ice. So those are really the restraints, right? Mm -hmm. It's God's word, and that belongs commonly to all Christian people. Which the Catholic Church had lost at the time of the Reformation. Yes, and... um, you know, they had the same sort of cult of experts that we have today. 
And we even see the same sort of thing in um, among synodical circles anyways, right? Mm -hmm. Where you should go get a PhD because people will listen to you more. Well, no. <laughs> that's That doesn't restrain me. That doesn't, right. you know, your just arguments think, are just terrible. Think if you had a PhD, think of how many more listeners we'd have. I know. It'd be rough, right? Dr. Berg. <sighs> Gross. Well, it's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> it's the Bullhagen and Dr. Berg show. Right. Sounds like I'm And we have be... to start with, I'm Dr. Berg, I'm Bullhagen, I'm Vicar. <laughs> <laughs> and Pete's here. Hey, Pete. <laughs> but, you know, and this is why, like, we have sort of checks and balances, right? Within the congregation, you don't have one person handling the money because we know people are sinners, right? And we don't want to give them the temptation to embezzle. Like I, mm -hmm. I tell you what, there have been a, there's at least two congregations that I know of where this has been a huge problem. One of them, um, it was the pastor who was embezzling, and because he had a gambling addiction. Uh, the other um, was the uh, was the was the treasurer of the church, and she embezzled like fifty to eighty thousand dollars over ten years. You know, so that's why we have the sort of rules we have. Right, um, that's why we follow things like parliamentary procedure. That's why we do these kind of things. Why? Because we don't want mob rule. Because right. we we don't want people it, crushed by a majority or by a really charismatic person. So that you one, so that uh, it's not a, a saying that you don't trust anybody. You can trust them and still have these rules. Right. But but at the same time, also it protects the person serving, so that false accusations can't be made. Right. I mean, I trust that people suffer from temptation. I trust that people are weak. And I trust that certain temptations will make them fall into sin. And and this is something that as a, a Christian you can actually make use of too. Absolutely. You know? You know, if you're we have that this beautiful way of open keeping the door cracked open for our sin. And, you know, we're saying where we say, well, this is my temptation. Well, I'm, instead of rather than shut the door to that temptation, I'm going to leave the, 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 the door cracked a little bit. So I'm not going to do it. But, you know, if I walk by and look in, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, this happens all the time. And uh, so that's why we we actually do have things that, yeah, could we organize the church in a different way? Yeah, we could. But no matter what you do. There's always going to be that propensity for human sin, whether you have bishops or whether you have congregationalism right. it's or just anything gonna be, in between. It's just going to look different. It's just going to be a different sin. But right. Because it's almost like, uh, uh, do you remember reading that August Pieper article about human domination in the in the church? We a read it like, like two years ago. Yes. And he says, like, the man without Christ is simultaneously um, a despot and a slave. And that is how our sinful human nature apart from Christ is, is that we seek to dominate others while at the same time being, you know, submissive or, you know, in a slave state to others, right? Mm -hmm. It's only in Christ that we can be truly free and serve one another. So, all right, last one. And number one.
The thinking conservative understands that permanence and change must be recognized and reconciled in a vigorous society. So um, the conservative is not a repristinator, right? He's not opposed to improvement, right? What it needs to be is slow, thoughtful, prudent, right? Just like in our bodies, right? You know, we don't shed our skins like snakes do, right? Not, not that I know of. Right. I hope not anyways. <laughs> Listener, if that happens to you, you probably have a problem. Although I, I, ha- I do get skin tearing pumps in the gym. Nice. I want to say nice, but <laughs> anyway. So um, it's just like the human body, right? Your body replaces itself slowly, right? Mm-hmm. If it would replace itself too fast, then you have cancer. If it replaces itself too slow, you die, right? So it's striking that balance between making improvements, but also keeping a continuity, oh, right? Now we've, we've talked a little bit about COVID, kind of like what's the best way to, to help with COVID? Um, eat healthy, get sleep, you'll exercise. Right. <laughs> and you know what makes for a healthy congregation? Go to church, receive mm-hmm. the sacrament, be baptized, hear and read the word of God. Right. Be absolved. Be right. absolved, right? We're looking, we always look for the quick fix. And are there things that, you know, we can, you know, change? Absolutely, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we are doing a podcast right now. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a change, right? And, and, and imagine to think that you thought we would maybe get, we'd do about five episodes and then we'd lose interest. Yeah, I truly thought that, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit, I'll admit I've ex- I have used a lot of energy to keep this thing afloat at times. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, you know, and that's the thing is that you don't have to be frozen or standing still to be a conservative, right? You should do things that are best for the body, right? Things that are slow, right? Like when you're weightlifting, you know, you said you did 225, 15 times, right? Yep. You didn't start at 225. No. I, you I, started with a I lower. Fir- I think the first time it was like 220. No. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I'm saying, right? You you made you made slow right. market improvements over the years, right? What's the saying, Peter? You got to tell the story about your friend in school uh, making a presentation. We don't have time. I'm sorry. Oh. We're out of time. Rome wasn't built in a day. Is the thing I say. Rome in wasn't the gym. built in a day. All right. Well, sorry, Peter. <laughs> I had a lot to say. So yeah, no, clearly. actually, no, it's we a should good episode. We should apologize to Hannah. Yeah, because we'll get to your other two questions. She has this this wedding invitation sitting on her kitchen table. (laughs) She doesn't know what to do yet. yet. (laughs) Because we're two weeks in since we got that email. Oh, man. Yeah. She's wondering about a a wedding to go to. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, Hannah. Hopefully, our next episode, uh, three weeks after your question, won't be too late. (laughs) If, if you really need to know, text Vicar. <laughs> He'll get a hold of one of us. Sh- should we Should we mention once again, hopefully at the beginning of this episode, we talked about the fact that we have a live event coming up. On the 24th of June. 24th, that's uh, next, next Monday. Not tomorrow, but the next Monday. At the Windsor Theater, the historic. Windsor uh, taking a step out of the studio. All right. It is a conservative's dream over there. <laughs> Ancient, historic, pristine. And so we'll hope to see you there. And then a few weeks after that on, uh, what day did we decide even? 
the the third, right? Yes. Is it the third already? Okay. So yeah, then a, a week later on Thursday we should be in Minnesota. Live event there. It's gonna be rad. Indeed. All right. Well, I think that we're we're running out of steam. Do you want to do a third episode? <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've got stuff for it. Yeah, I got a, a visit in half an hour. I have to do chapel for the kids, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for listening. I'm Bullhagen. I'm Berg. And I'm Vicar. And may your calves be natural. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.